You're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Energy Program. Today's podcast is designed to introduce our listeners to one of three different topics that we recently delved into as part of our Energy Futures Forum. The Energy Futures Forum is an annual workshop that we conduct where we attempt to identify and explore issues that could significantly impact the energy sector over the next 10 years. We don't try to provide one outlook of the future, but instead we engage with and challenge the energy community's thinking about how issues that we're talking about today may evolve over a medium-term time frame and what those potential changes might mean for energy policymaking and commercial decision-making. One of the three issues that we decided to cover this year is the evolution of sanctions regimes and their impact on the energy sector. I can think of no better person to discuss that topic with than Liz Rosenberg, who is Senior Fellow and Director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Liz drafted a background paper on this topic for the Energy Futures Forum and is here to discuss that with us today. Liz, welcome back to Energy 360. Thanks, Sarah. Glad to be with you. Great. Okay, so let's just start with the basics. How do the sanctions regimes that we have today impact the energy sector both directly and indirectly? Right. So the broad sanctions that the United States has, as well as um, what the United States may join with other international um, institutions, so the UN or maybe the EU as a, as a group of nations, um, to, to put in place, these sanctions have a broad array of effect, effects on the energy sector. Some of them are um, very discreet and immediate. There may be immediate price effects. Um, if there is a sanction that is aiming at pulling supply off the market, for example, um, there are also uh, broader uh, and often systemic but uh, less direct effects having to do with cutting off uh, the potential for major financial institutions to offer uh, support project finance, for example, or trade finance to certain players in the energy system uh, or producers specifically. And that may not have an immediate effect, but it will affect the uh, business development plans and the the project pipeline, if you will, for these companies as they're considering where they can invest and produce and add barrels to the market. So those are two major effects. There are other ones, too, that are less commonly looked at, uh, including um, restricting access of U.S. technology, U.S. equipment, the ability for U.S. citizens to be involved in certain projects. And in many of those cases, there are workarounds, uh, except notably the service sector, where uh, Western firms, if you will, U.S. or European-based firms, in many respects, in many jurisdictions, have a real comparative advantage. They're technically more sophisticated. They've got really good uh, process and design and proprietary technology, which it will take time for other service companies to replace or to replicate. And so all of the sanctions that you've just talked about, they are represented in places like Iran or Russia or Venezuela. I think those are the ones that we most predominantly think about. And in the last several years, there's arguably been sort of an uptick in U.S. sanctions in you know, to achieve certain ends in all of these countries. But what do you think is like the future direction, both for the sanctions regimes that we have in place in these places – 
um, on your previous podcast here, you talked about like the the tactics and the the sort of art, for lack of a better word, of sanctions themselves. And then there's just sort of other places where sanctions can be applied. I mean, what, when you think about where we're going with all of this, you know, what direction do you think the application of sanctions is, is headed? Well, I like that you started the question by talking about this uptick in sanctions. I definitely agree that we've seen that in the last several years. And I think that trend line will continue, maybe exponentially, in the next several years. And there's several reasons for that. Uh, they include the fact that there's a perception of success uh, in the use of sanctions, which is mostly uh, attributed to the Iran example and the narrative in public policy circles goes that the application of the sanctions pressure by the United States and by Europe and other countries brought Iran to the negotiating table. And in fairness to the very broad conversation about the effectiveness of sanctions in industry circles and in policy circles and in academic circles, there's a really healthy debate about whether they work or not. But in the present political moment, there's a lot of assumption that they do. And furthermore, there is an assumption, which I don't think is correct, but it's difficult to argue against for lack of broad analytical work but a perception that they don't have major economic consequences. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that even if they don't deliver tremendous public policy success, there may not be a lot of harm in imposing them. So if you think about the current U.S. administration, which is very interested in sanctions, they are pursuing a maximum financial pressure strategy, not just in sanctions, but in other uh, economic statecraft files as well, <laughs> which we will leave aside for now. Um, but because they are pursuing this, and uh, as I think the White House looks out at the U.S. economy, the market's up, unemployment's down, we're doing fine. So if that is the going-in assumption, and there are these tough tools at your disposal, and a desire to really push back on uh, certain international competitors uh, or to advance certain foreign policy goals, then these are a tool of first resort, uh, a first strike policy, if you will. And I think that will continue um, into the future. That certainly includes uh, Iran, Russia, Venezuela. I think we'll see more there. Uh, also, I think there will be more in the future with North Korea, but what that looks like from the economics or the mechanics means targeting Chinese institutions because they are the major financial lifeline and conduit for North Korea. More than 90% of their financial activity and trade goes through China. And this administration is really quite comfortable with disruptive economic policies that can uh, roil the market. They feel fine in that scenario. And I think not just the administration, but also members of Congress have uh, challenged the notion that they want to be careful about upsetting the the oil market. I think there has been in years past a reluctance to take policy uh, measures that would spike the price. And uh, we've seen people hold back on sanctions measures or other policy choices that would increase the price of oil and the price of gasoline for U.S. consumers. But there's 
apparently a much greater willingness by members of Congress and the administration to really embrace those policies that can drive up the price. They're comfortable with this disruptive environment, maybe even in multiple uh, domains or multiple theaters at the same time. So simultaneous sanctions pressure to restrict supply in the market in uh, Venezuela and in Iran and uh, indirectly in Russia by l- restricting access to financing and technology and service company JVs or foreign company JVs too. It's a really interesting perspective that you know sanctions is a tool of first resort because the perception is that you can achieve the goal of eliciting some sort of pressure or, or providing a, a, a situation where you're you're exuding some pressure on on the sort of target of your sanctions and yet you're not doing it for a, you know at the economic cost to at least the United States you know arguably other countries have paid a stiffer price for sanctions regimes but but it also interestingly you sort of talked about the other economic statecraft files which are you know clearly trade and that is an area where we seem to be okay with having some cost associated with the pressure that we'd like to create to remedy some issues. So that's another kind of factor in in the argument for utilization of sanctions. Right, right. So if the president is most focused on his political base in the United States, that is not necessarily the same constituency as the biggest U.S. firms, uh, including energy firms, or uh, broad sector energy uh, in intensive, if you will, uh, regional um, uh, industries. So Gulf Coast refining, uh, energy intensive Gulf Coast manufacturing. The president is interested in his uh, his his base, his constituency, and we have seen on a number of occasions that ener- U.S. major U.S. energy companies uh, offering their uh, cautionary notes and their critique of U.S. sanctions policy in certain regions has not caused a pullback, and it's often caused uh, Congress uh, or the administration to double down mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. when when they see that it's uh, provocative mm-hmm. and that it may have a market effect, which is, in fact, their purpose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe I have a quaint idea of sanctions in, in the past, but I had this sense that we would have a sanctions regime with a particular purpose, right? And so whether it was the Minsk Agreement or the JCPOA or those sorts of things, and there was a way in which you could you know, figure out what the negotiation here was, right? So you negotiate your way out of a sanctions regime. I'm not sure I know precisely what it is that will get us out of the sanctions regimes that we're in today. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, are there, are there key points that you're looking out over the next several years that say, well, if that happened, then we have a clear path for rolling back these sanctions and having them go away. Is it as clear as that anymore? So you're right. It's quaint. <laughs> That's a quaint view, Sarah. Um, and it's uh, the, home, the people who love that are um, purists and academics and maybe you and me. But but uh, as we know, in the world of uh, of um, of politics these days, sanctions have become a the the craft or implementation enforcement of sanctions is not only a tool of U.S. foreign policy or uh, economic statecraft. It's also a uh, very uh, active and um, creative arena for political struggle. And that's partisan. 
It's also constitutional, if you will. So that is between our legislative and our executive branch. And uh, the folks in these two branches and these two parties have figured out that there's a, a lot of um, uh, posturing and leveraging to be to be applied here between them. And if that's the case and they see value, which they clearly do in um, claiming their stripes on national security or in trying to gain an upper hand in some areas of policy, one branch over the other, they're not so worried about uh, long-term strategy and negotiation and the rollback of these measures. And the whole game is who can be tougher. And in that environment, no one is talking about restraint or rollback. And even if you're talking about making a deal, to um, uh, the great deal makers and you know the politics of today, uh, it's it's not so easy as a legal matter to uh, to roll back some of these measures. And I think this is something that the current administration is realizing, even as they're trying to reimpose, so dial up sanctions on Iran. But the the legal uh, fancy footwork of this is um, it's complicated, and they uh, have the option to try and reimpose it in a way that would facilitate the grand bargain with Iran that they are hoping for uh, to cover not just nuclear files but all of the other files. Um, or they can just slam down sanctions and tarnish Iran's financial system and its regional destabilization, uh, which will make it difficult to roll it back. They're, they're definitely in that latter camp, which is certainly how politicians today are focused on sanctions. They're not so worried or concerned or interested with um, um, putting out the policy incentive to create uh, the policy or behavior change that would allow for a rollback in a deal scenario. It's really just ramping it up, piling it on, applying pressure, uh, the United States angry at the world. So And our closest friends. Yeah, well, uh, you mentioned at the outset that one of the reasons why you're bullish on the imposition of additional sanctions is their perception of being successful and or at least low cost, right, in terms of their economic impact. But you said that was kind of a lack of sort of empirical data to support that or foundational research, I think. I mean, what is your perception on what the near-term impacts of sanctions have been in perhaps some of the unintended consequences that you focused on? And then, you know, because Energy Futures Forum is really thinking about how that could evolve, like, are there longer-term consequences that don't typically make it into our conversation about the trade-offs of these kinds of policies in the here and now, but are things to be watching uh, over the next 10 years or so? Right. So there are definitely um, near-term impacts. There are long-term impacts. Across the board, this kind of policy uh, application is wildly understudied for how significantly it's being used. So I think to some people I sound like a real sanctions evangelist when I say <laughs> we really need to uh, focus much more on understanding what the consequences are. To the extent that um, people look at this, there's some really good research that looks, uh, for example, just at um, the economic effects, maybe the policy response related to major sanctions on Russia in 2014, for example. There's some really good work been that's been done on sanctions on Iran in that period of most intensive sanctions from 2012 to 2015. But uh, 
major, you know, bigger uh, studies across cases. There's been quite limited work on that. When it's looking, when people look at the energy sector effects, um, people are often only looked at a, looking at a price effect or maybe certain kinds of um, uh, joint venture or commercial partnership activity. But there, uh, it's it's more difficult to look at how FID numbers are changing over time. How um, how uh, uh, OPEX is changing. Uh, if you see a set of uh, sanctions layered on in a jurisdiction or between, uh, say, we're talking about Russia, um, international service firms there versus uh, domestic uh, firms there. So it would be tremendously useful for all stakeholders if there was a lot more research done on this and in the public domain, I think it would make public policymakers think more carefully about how they apply sanctions. I think the ship has sailed. There's no no one who's going to talk restraint here, but it will. There is an opportunity to talk about uh, what you would want to sanction and what is not an economic consequence we're willing to bear, or how we might stumble inadvertently into consequences we we're not interested in courting. Uh, so. That's where research will help public policymakers. Also, for companies struggling with this, obviously, many affected companies look at the implications of sanctions for their own business decisions. But it's challenging to compare notes across the sector, except in certain discrete cases. Say, many companies see um, uh, difficulty for them in a particular sanctions bill in Congress, so they may get together and talk about that. But it's harder to uh, gather more data together. Uh, and one thing that means is that there's not enough focus on the long-term consequences. And there's a bunch of those that matter, not just at the price and uh, investment decision level, where you're going to invest, how you should be thinking about what will be available in Venezuela. So we were talking before about um, rollback of sanctions. Mm -hmm. What if there should be a political uh, change in Venezuela such that um, Observers in the United States and in Europe, which, by the way, has its own – the EU has its own sanctions on Venezuela, of course. They bear on the situation as well. But what if there should be a political uh, change and a desire to roll back some of these sanctions? This is a very rosy mm -hmm. scenario sure. looking forward. But we've got challenges in doing that because some of the people who are designated are – uh, does it, uh, under different authorities. So sometimes for uh, human rights violation or um, uh, interrupting a democratic process or um, uh, political destabilization, some of these people may uh, come around and change their behavior and others don't. Mm -hmm. It's still difficult for, say, Citibank to decide how they're going to be involved and who they can deal with and who they can't. And if people are tied together through relationships of beneficial ownership or um, uh, corporate uh, joint joint uh, venture partnerships, for example, if you can deal with some people but not others, or what if you can't deal with the energy minister, yeah. but you can do with deal with other PDVSA officials. So there's that's really challenging to think about. Um, if politics change, can you re-engage? And then what will that mean for, in this, taking forward this example further, Venezuela's future production potential? What about all the rest of the Latin American and Caribbean countries that are uh, tied in various supply relationships with Venezuela? What does that mean for U.S. Gulf Coast uh, uh, refining sector um, that has a, a you know, ener direct energy trading tie with uh 
with that crude. Uh, so th- those are some of the consequences there. And there are others, too, that um, that you could, if you're trying to sort of lift up to the 30,000-foot level that you that we should be focusing on, too. Mm-hmm. And what, I mean, what about, do people go too far with examples of, you know, ways in which there's longer-term implications with, you know, folks finding alternative ways to finance uh, their transactions, you know, uh, uh, different sectors and different economies figuring out ways of creating, you know, competitive commercial and technological capability. I mean, how far afield are some of these projections that people make about the lengths to which other countries who would really like to not be um, held, uh, quite frankly, hostage by sort of the Western financial system or U.S. sanctions regimes? What, what's the art of the possible over the next 10 years? Right. So there's, there's a couple of things we should uh, focus on. I'll give a couple of examples which uh, may be uh, unconventional or surprising depending on how you, how you come to this. So the first one is uh, fintech or financial technology and uh, specifically how people pay for oil, mm-hmm. the unit of value, if you will, for how they pay for it. And, and this is what's more significant, how they then move that unit of value. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you will, the, the rails of the financial system. So for various reasons unrelated to uh, evasion from, of sanctions, um, related to instead a desire for greater efficiency, and lower transaction costs and moving financial uh, payments. Um, people are pioneering new technologies and distributed ledger technologies, for example. And they, uh, they're they often uh, outside of the United States, this fintech innovation, for some reasons, which I will leave aside for right now, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and also outside of U.S. jurisdiction. So you can imagine a scenario where those rails are outside of U.S. jurisdiction, even if they're trading dollars. Yeah. And that may mean that the United States has – it'll have less uh, leverage, fewer choke points to go after with sanctions or other instruments, mm-hmm. other regulatory instruments, uh, that that trade, that uh, the payment for that oil trade mm-hmm. or other financial mm-hmm. activity. And so that may mean that the United States has less – strength, less effect, that those sanctions are less available if the rails of the financial system move outside of a U.S. jurisdiction, outside of U.S. nexus. So that's one that we should expect certainly within the next decade. And I'd pull that forward several years, I mean, to to just several years from now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It'll be uh, uneven, uh, episodic. It'll probably advance more uh, in certain regional pockets where there is an opportunity to uh, maybe enough volume and um, uh, in enough of a with access to enough of a convertible currency that can be cleared outside of U.S. jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So this definitely describes uh, East Asia, mm-hmm. maybe Hong Kong or China, mm-hmm. maybe a yuan-based. Current uh, crude contract, um, where there's an opportunity to try and uh, uh, engineer a lot more crude trading and payment outside of U.S. nexus. Um, and a second area that we should look at it, uh, with regard to sanctions, energy effects, is, uh, if you will, the, the U.S.-China relationship. So in the U.S.-China relationship, 
There are many economic files, um, many growing by the day. day. (laughs) There's growing tensions here. um, And the priorities for uh, each country are not aligned. So whereas, um, let's say, North Korea is 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 the top or the second, uh, along with um, uh, a concern about unfair trade for the United States. These are really two top priorities. Uh, and Iran is up there as well. Uh, the United States doesn't want Iran to, rather China, to purchase Iranian oil come November fourth mm-hmm. when sanctions are reimposed. China's priority rank of these issues is different, mm-hmm. and um, they care about China, China, the central government, and various crude purchasers, refiners, etc. They certainly care about diversified uh, crude supplies uh, for, you know cost management and leverage for supply security for all of the above. Um, but it's not as important to them uh, uh, to the, rather Iran crude is not as significant politically to China as it is to the United States. And that mismatch means that China has a China has a lot of leverage with the United States because it's more important to the United States that Iran stop selling its crude internationally. So China can or cannot comply with U.S. sanctions on Iran. It has a lot of leverage over the United States. And that mismatch of priorities, uh, China's growing financial leverage, the growing size of its uh, of its economic activity are all major challenges for the United States, and that will only intensify. So even if we don't see a future where Chinese currency really achieves major international status, it's not a hard currency of choice, uh, just by virtue of having so much economic activity and, frankly, so many dollars it may be able to clear in its own jurisdiction, mm-hmm. it has Uh, a lot of leverage over the United States when it comes to sanctions, including energy sanctions. So there's an opportunity for China to insulate itself from the effects of these sanctions. Bad news for the U.S. So you've painted a really bullish picture for the future of sanctions as a preeminent tool for economic statecraft, and quite frankly, as the ability to reshape a lot of how folks are thinking about interaction with the U.S. in the energy sector, both for financing and commercial involvement as well. But are the guardrails all off? I mean, are there things that could occur over this time frame, you know, that that do kind of warrant some caution? You mentioned at the outset, you know, we care about oil prices today a little bit more than we have over the last four years, right? Prices are higher now. So there is some speculation that, you know, the president tweets about it, you know, occasionally. It's not clear that it's stopping what the U.S. wants to do on the sanctions front, but one could envision a situation where, you know, whether it's because of economic impact or security of supply reasons, that there there is some sort of caution that's brought to bear. Do you see any of that? I mean, do you see the potential for there to be guardrails or places people still won't go? Well... Not really. (laughs) And I'm not trying to just be sensationalistic, but think about it this way. Here's one way I've been thinking about it. So this administration, the Trump administration, is committed, as we've seen them (laughs) say and and, uh, and, and, uh, offer policy decisions to to affirm this commitment, uh, to not participating in the Iran nuclear deal. So we'll take this as an example. 
and they, uh, President Trump poured all kinds of cold water over this deal, campaigning as president, withdrew the United States, taking a very aggressive stance towards implementation and enforcement of sanctions. Uh, I assume that we will see some um, enforcement cases that are meant to scare people and brush people back uh, going into the fall and into the fall. And if this is the case, uh, we should be certain that the Trump administration will not tolerate being seen as uh, weak or soft on Iran. They will absolutely want to be tougher on Iran than the Obama administration was, which was pretty tough on Iran in those years to applying these maximum financial sanctions. And um, think of a scenario where the the tight market gets tighter and prices uh, keep ticking up. Uh, what if Venezuela slides off even faster than we anticipate? And it's already a really bleak outlook. Um, plus, uh, at the moment, sort of, you know, uh, Canada, Libya, watching Nigeria. Um, if all of that comes together, Trump's base doesn't care about <laughs> disruptions and uh, and isn't aware about disruptions in Libya and Canada and uh, Venezuela. They will want to know, they will be upset if he appears to be a softy on Iran by taking his foot off the gas. Um, thanks very much for joining us, Liz. Thanks, Sarah. Again, I'm Sarah Ladislaw with CSIS Energy National Security Program, and thanks for listening to Energy 360.